What you're seeing here dates from the 6th century. This is one of the oldest Byzantine icons that we have. This is actually the earliest known depiction of Jesus, though, as Pantocrator. Pantocrator basically means the almighty ruler of all. Today is uh, the Feast of Christ the King. As I mentioned earlier, this is the, the last Sunday in the church calendar that emphasizes the universal rule of Christ, what we're seeing symbolized here. And I said next, uh, next Sunday begins Advent. This is when we are looking forward to God's coming Messiah slash King, his anointed one. And today ends the year with the proclamation of his universal reign. So what you see here, um, there's a definite emphasis on strength. You can see authority coming through in this icon. But there's also another side to this icon, if you pay attention. Notice the, the asymmetry in the face. One side is slightly different than the other side. So one side of his face, um, well, this asymmetry, people see different things. Some see the, the dual nature of Christ, his humanity and his divinity trying to be represented here. Some see justice and mercy being represented here. And so it could be there's a, a multiple dualities that are, are being expressed in this icon. His humanity, divinity, his kindness, his severity, his strength and weakness, authority, vulnerability. Paul wrote to the Roman church, note, consider, behold, the kindness and severity of God. We always go wrong when we neglect one of those in God. When, if we do that, we distort who God is. Paul says, note that, note that in this icon, his, his right side of his face, your left, looks a little kinder, maybe, if you, if you look closely. His left side, your right side, looks a little more stern, severe, which matches the hands. If you go down to the hands, his right hand is gently blessing. His left hand is firmly holding the, the book of the Gospels or the scriptures in their entirety, which is very interesting if you look at the, the painting of Rembrandt's The Return of the Prodigal Son. If any of you have paid, spent some time there, you'll notice the different hands that are similar. The right hand of the Father is smaller, more gentle. The right or the left hand is more strong, firm. And then there's other duality. You can look at the, the Bible, and at the center of the Bible, what is there? There's the cross, the suffering of Christ, the vulnerability of Christ in the middle of the almighty authoritative word of God. So there's a number of dualities going on in this icon uh, and beyond this icon. The, the kindness and severity, the, the vulnerability and the authority, the, the strength and the weakness of God, as Paul says it in his letter to the First Corinthians. I've, um, I've con continued to read Andy's book, Strong and the Weak, and my eyes have just been opened to how much this is evident. This, is, this comes together 
in people like Paul, in the lives of those who truly flourish, in the lives of those who lead well in life-giving, God-honoring, culture-making ways, and how these come together most powerfully, most beautifully in the life of Christ. And how blind we can be to this kind of kingship, leadership, which is so apparent in our gospel readings. That's what we're going to be looking at this morning. Luke chapter 23, verses 35 to 43. Luke 23, verses 35 to 43. Notice how many times Jesus is named as Messiah, which is its way of saying God's anointed, same Christ, his anointed king, or the word, the very word king. But notice how many times he's named this in a mocking way by other leaders and those with authority and power and strength in some way. And how they're mocking because they don't have an imagination for how a leader, a king, could be so vulnerable could suffer at the hands of other rulers. Rulers put others in subjection to them. They don't suffer at the hands of other rulers. They didn't have an imagination for this. So it says the people stood by, but the leaders, who again didn't seem to know what authority could mean with vulnerability, scoffed at him, saying, he saved others, let him save himself. If, in fact, he is the Messiah of God, God's chosen one. Show us real leadership strength here, Jesus. Come on. The soldiers, soldiers who are only supposed to show strength, never weakness, they also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, if you are, in fact, the king of the Jews, save yourself. Show us some real strength here which a leader should be doing. Then one of the criminals joins in the chorus, right? It says he he kept deriding him, saying as well, are you not the Christ, the Messiah? Then save yourself and us who are hanging here with you. But the inscription over him says, this is the king of the Jews. We know more than that, that this is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is Christ the King, and he's showing us what true kingship, true leadership looks like. The criminal on the other side gets this, sees this. He rebukes the the other criminal, And he goes on to say, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He recognized the Messiah. He recognized true, kingly, divine leadership that is both strong and weak, right? It's both suffering and accomplishing something powerful in heaven and on earth and even under the earth, as we're going to see in a minute. So Jesus says to him, truly I tell you, today 
you will be with me in paradise. Man, imagine hearing those words hanging on a cross. You are far from paradise. The criminal knew what he deserved. And then to hear the words, actually, today, you're going to be with me, the Messiah, in paradise. Now, unless we were familiar with the Jewish understanding of paradise in the underworld, the realm of the dead, we wouldn't know how wonderful, actually, those words would be to hear. How much meaning are in those words? What I'm about to share comes from the excellent scholarship of Matthew Emerson. If anybody's read this book, it's called He Descended to the Dead, an Evangelical Theology of Holy Saturday. An amazing, groundbreaking book, um, really just looking at the biblical historical understanding of Christ's descent into the dead and what that meant. What was Jesus doing there? What was going on? We haven't paid a lot of attention to that as evangelicals or Protestants. In this book, he outlines the ancient Jewish understanding of the afterlife that appears to line up with Jesus' teaching on the afterlife that we see illustrated in his parable of Lazarus and the rich man. So at this time, it was understood that the realm of the dead in the, the underworld had compartments. Now, under and above, but we think physical geography, but again, this is trying, these are descriptions of a spiritual reality. A lot of times, close, meaning to be closer and further from God, the creator and judge of all the earth. But in the, in the underworld, in the realm of the dead, there were two compartments that we see in the parable of Lazarus. One compartment for the unrighteous, for where, where Lazarus, or sorry, the rich man is. The other compartment for the righteous who are waiting for the Messiah. So the unrighteous, they're in their compartment, they're experiencing judgment to some degree and waiting for future judgment to come. And the righteous are there in paradise in the underworld, waiting for the Messiah to come. It's also called uh, Abraham's side or Abraham's bosom. These were synonymous terms, paradise and Abraham's side. So when Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise, me, the Messiah, He's saying, now finally, the long-awaited Messiah that the, those righteous in the underworld were waiting for is finally arriving, coming to paradise. And so that's why Paul can say now, post-Good Friday, when we die, when a believer dies, we are absent from the body and present with the Lord, with the Messiah. In paradise. In paradise, we no longer wait for the Messiah to come. Since Good Friday, he has arrived. So we don't wait for the Messiah anymore. We do wait for resurrected bodies. We do wait for paradise to be turned into the new creation, the new heavens and the new earth. That's still coming. We're still waiting for that. And now, through the Christ's exaltation, his, ascended, his ascension to the Father's right hand, because he is in with paradise, he is in paradise and paradise with him, paradise is now with him at the right hand of the Father. 
Paradise is no longer in the underworld, so to speak. Jesus has changed paradise already, and he's going to change it some more when we get our resurrected bodies and we get the new creation. There's a lot here to unpack. Maybe this is a lot of new stuff for you. Read the book. This is a really good book that outlines this, shows this isn't heresy. This is in the scriptures. This is what Christians have understood that we've been ignorant of for a long time. A lot of good news about what was happening, what Jesus has done in the underworld. Back to the descent to the dead. This was Christ's final stage in his descent, his humble descent. It was also the beginning of his victorious ascent and exaltation, where the finished work of the cross began to have its effect in this realm of the dead. So in in Revelation, Jesus says, I have the keys of death and Hades. The power of his suffering enabled him to go there and take the keys from the rulers of death and Hades, and now they're in his hands so that he could go on to rise physically from the dead. It would have no power over him. That's true power. (laughs) That's unheard of strength. It makes me think, oh, what a friend we have in Jesus. Such strength and weakness. Such vulnerability and authority in our king, in our friend. Oh, to be with him in life, in paradise, in the new creation. This is the last Sunday of our friendship series. And uh, after some some more remarks on friendship, we're going to look at how Jesus in strength and weakness, befriended people. Especially how he did that at the margins, with people who were at the margins of society. Because that's what a real king does. That's what his strength and weakness lead him to. Friendship at the margins, it's the title of a book by Christopher Hertz. He is the international director of Word Made Flesh. This is a great book. And uh, he, this is an organization, they call themselves contemplative activists. It's a great thing to aspire to. Their goal is to serve Jesus among the most vulnerable of the world's poor. An incredible organization. It's co-written by Christine Pohl. So if you know her, she's one of the foremost scholars on Christian hospitality in the fuller, biblical, more radical sense of hospitality. And she's, uh, some of us were led in a book study of one of her books here at Church of the Cross. But the book she co-authored here, the fuller title is called Friendship at the Margins, Discovering Mutuality in Service and Mission. And in the book, they're asking and trying to answer the question, how would Mission, how different would mission and discipleship look if in the church, if we prioritized friendship, you could even just stop there, but with those at the margins of life, of society? How would that look? 
with those who are, yeah, the most vulnerable among the poor. How would that look if that was one of our priorities? So they, they highlighted in the book how that we can experience impoverishment in a number of different ways. Right? We can experience impoverishment by lacking resources in our lives, the means to just survive food and shelter and clothing. But we can, be all, we can also be impoverished by a lack of meaningful relationships and friendships in our lives. Which means, yeah, there's a lot in Boston <laughs> who are impoverished in that way as well. But how much of our efforts in, in giving care to people pay attention to that? That's the question. So giving money and resources to people who don't have or who lack money and resources, giving and working to change the structural and systemic problems that lead to poverty and impoverishment, that's something we still need to do. That's, there's a lot of work to be done still there, of course. That's, we're not supposed to give that up in this. Um, and there's something helpful in doing that anonymously when we give and we work for people who we will never meet, we will never have an, a relationship with, form a friendship with. There's, a, there's an advantage to that at times when, well, we can help and give more things to more people because we can't form a friendship with everybody. Um, and there's sometimes there's power dynamics. You can avoid uncomfortable situations in that kind of scenario. But we also miss out on something both the people we're giving to and those who are trying to give. Those aren't the only things people need. Those aren't the only things we need, resources, physical things. We were made to be in close, committed, caring relationships. How much of our giving, serving, working pays attention to that? How much of our giving, serving, working offers that. Someone who did pay attention to this was William Booth, who started the Salvation Army in 1865 in the east end of London. He was an evangelist who had a heart for the poor. And his influence has been far-reaching. Right, today there's over a million and a half members in the Salvation Army. In over a hundred countries, and these are people who, have, who are known for. It's really hard to criticize the Salvation Army. They do good work. They care for the world's most vulnerable, the homeless, those on addicted to drugs, those who are offenders, those who people are ignoring, not caring for. They've helped millions of people, touched millions of people in this way. William Booth, commenting on the movement, wrote this. One of the secrets of the success of the Salvation Army is that the friendless of the world find friends in it. They find people who tend to, yes, the practical needs that they have, but also the relational needs they have, the need for these caring relationships, these friendships. 
Christine Pohl in the book wrote this. Global injustice and human need are so big that all sorts of responses are needed. And she goes on, she says, in fact, in my experience, and she's someone who hasn't just written about uh, hospitality and caring for refugees. She has done this herself. She knows from experience. She says, in my experience, holding together the personal and the structural is the most powerful combination. So thinking back to our earlier comments of the strong and the weak, this vulnerable, sen this vulnerable side of the way we relate to people and the powerful side. She says, people who offer hospitality to homeless folk or refugees provide very personal care and response. That's along the vulnerable side of things. It's, it's risky to do this kind of thing. It's vulnerable. It puts us in a vulnerable place, especially when we offer and try to offer friendship. But most of these people who do this, she says, also work on the issues at a systemic level. Otherwise, the work is, is too small discouraging. That's along the, the strength and the authority end of things, actually changing the situation, the living conditions of people, working towards that. On the other hand, ab doing advocacy without knowing any of the people for whom you advocate leads to a sterile and distanced kind of helping. We need both, right? We need the structural, systemic, and we need the personal, relational, which can lead to friendship sometimes. And this kind of thing can be rewarding in a number of ways. So when we become friends with those who are different than us economically, maybe they have much less than us, they're, they're what we would call people living on the margins, more vulnerable people, it enables us, it helps us not just to see them as this strange, mysterious category called the poor or the vulnerable, as if they're like some other kind of species. They're human, just like us. It keeps us from reducing them to their surroundings and their situation in life and helps us see them as persons with a story. And they can go the other way, too. If we're fighting for justice, it keeps us from seeing the rich and donors as just some people with power that I need to use for my cause. Because that can happen too. Friendship keeps us from doing this reduction towards people in both angles, both ways. And it brings a mutuality to the relationship. It's not just about me offering something to the other person, but it recognizes we both have something to offer each other. So it's not just something I give in friendship, I actually am, I need to be ready to receive something. Because friendship isn't just about giving something, it is that, but it also is about giving something of yourself to each other. And when that happens in a friendship, and especially at the margins of life with people, that's one of the most rewarding things you'll ever experience. During the announcements, we're going to hear a testimony from Joe. 
We'll hear more about that when we get to the announcements and how he has helped with Cataluma, this, uh, this ministry, this organization that Gary runs. We'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that during the announcements to give practical care to refugees in Boston and greater Boston. We're going to hear about a surprising friendship that's forming for Joe um, in this, uh, with someone who's, who's quite vulnerable on the margins, you could say, which shouldn't be an exceptional thing amongst us, especially amongst the people of God. Not if we're following our king in the way of our king. Those are the kinds of friendships he made. Jesus, he had a number of different kinds of friends, right? He had what seemed to be like his best friend, John. He had his closest friends, the three and the twelve of the apostles. He had special friends like Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And many of these friends, not all of them, but many of them were on the margins, were, were vulnerable people, were people who were excluded from regular community life. He had a reputation for being a friend of tax collectors and sinners, people you just don't hang out with. If you read the gospel, you know he was also a friend to the sick, to the spiritually oppressed, to those people that no one knew what to do with or wanted anything to do with. There's Jesus stopping, making time for them, speaking a word to them, befriending them, stopping for the one. These are the kinds of people Jesus stopped for, befriended and when he did it, he did it in strength and weakness. Coming back to our themes. To befriend people in these, in these situations, that can be a risky thing if you've given yourself to this kind of thing. It can, it can be vulnerable, right? It certainly got Jesus in trouble with the religious authorities. It was one of the things he got in trouble for, which in turn got him in trouble with the political authorities, which in turn put him on a cross. But Jesus wasn't just a vulnerable companion. He was a powerful companion with those he was with, right? In the power of the Spirit, he healed the people he was with. He delivered them from oppressive spiritual realities. He pronounced God's good news and forgiveness over them. In other words, yeah, he, he changed their living conditions. He wasn't just with them, but he changed their, their situation. And through his death and resurrection, he does something to change our dying situations as well. So that when we die, we are with him in paradise. Waiting for the finished work of Christ and his cross to finally fully be completed when we get our resurrected bodies and we get a new creation. That's going to be a new living situation accomplished by the death, the suffering of our king. What strength and weakness, what suffering, what authority, what a king, and oh, what a friend we have in Jesus. Amen. Amen.